We are in actually week two of a series that we are entitling uh, Ecclesia Officium. And uh, we just wanted to pick that, or I picked it really, because it sounded fancy. Maybe you'll remember it better. Anyway, but uh, the word Ecclesia, right there that you see at the top, ECC, is a Latin sort of, uh, it's a translation of the Greek word Ecclesia, which is E-K-K. But essentially what that word means is to call out a group of people and to gather them together. And so in the New Testament, whenever you see the word ekklesia, if you're a Greek reader of the New Testament, then that actually in English Bibles gets translated into the word the church because the understanding is those people are gathered together as people who have been called out of the culture actually to be faithful to God. Now, the second word there, officium, uh, is a Latin word that just means duty. And so when you put those two together, what we're basically saying here is we're saying, what is the duty of the church? In other words, what should every church at all times, in all generations, what are the things that are essential to what that church is? And that's the question we want to undertake over the course of now the next four weeks. So what we are saying here is that we're saying, and I think theologians and scholars have said this throughout the years, that the church, every healthy church, should do at least five things. And those five things are worship, education, friendship, restoration, and reconciliation. They might use different words, but those are the five functions of the church. So last week we looked at how one of the things the church is called to do is to lead people to worship. Obviously, that is very clearly demonstrated throughout Scripture. In today's sermon, we're going to be taking a look at the next duty of the church, which is education or teaching. Now, we're going to introduce this topic um, or this theme today with a clip from a movie that came out when I was a junior in high school. And so you can chuckle about that a little bit if you want, but it's called The Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society. Some of you guys have seen it. Uh, The movie stars Robin Williams as an English teacher named John Keating, and he's at the prestigious and rather stodgy Welton Academy. The story begins in the, the autumn of 1959, and in it, it stars uh, a very shy Todd Anderson who's beginning his junior year of high school at the all-male elite prep school in Vermont. On the first day of classes, Anderson and his fellow classmates are surprised by Keating's unorthodox teaching methods. A Welton alumnus himself, Keating encourages his students to make their lives extraordinary, a sentiment he summarizes with the Latin phrase, carpe diem means seize the day. Subsequent lessons included them telling, him telling them to rip out the introduction of their poetry books, which explain a mathematical formula for rating poetry, and he invites them to make up their own style of walking around in the courtyard to encourage them to be individuals. In the clip we're about to watch today, he invites students to stand up on his desk at the front of the class in order to have a different view of seeing the world. But before we begin with this clip, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you um, that you are a God who doesn't leave us in the dark, but rather um, you give us um, light so that we can see how it is that we are to live this life that you've called us to live. Father, we need that so badly. Um, And we also need to know who you are. Uh, Father, we need to know what it is um, that you believe about who we are. And so, Father, I pray um, that today we would be reminded that you freely um, give us really a a blueprint and a pathway and a way to understand not only the world, but also you and ourselves. Father, we pray all of these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of us would have probably enjoyed having a teacher like that in high school. Um, Maybe some of you did have a teacher like that in high school. Um, I did not, but 
one of the things that has to be said is that if you look at the Bible, you look at Scripture, Scripture has its fair share of really excellent teachers and dramatic teaching styles. If you think about it, Moses had some pretty memorable moments teaching the children of Israel in Sinai, Mount Sinai, and in the desert. David and Solomon clearly had their great moments of teaching as well. In fact, we still remember so much of what they taught. Paul debated and spoke all over the Greek world. He even spoke at Mars Hill in the shadow of the Acropolis, great teachers. Jesus, of course, dwarfed all of those great teachers, not only with his intellectual and philosophical acumen, but also with stories that even non-Christians still remember to this day, 2,000 years later. Each of these teachers remind us that education or teaching is one of the primary functions of the church. It's actually something that we're supposed to do. Now, here's our thesis statement for today's sermon. It's this. The education of the church is founded upon a belief that the Bible is both true and authoritative. The goal of education within the church is not only information, but it's transformation. Let's begin with that first sentence. The education of the church is founded upon a belief that the Bible is both true and authoritative. Now I'm going to make really three points or subpoints out of this first clause. The first and the most obvious is that the church is supposed to engage in teaching. Paul, writing to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, makes the following statement. He says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from, you, from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So earlier in the chapter, Paul warned Timothy about how they're going to be false teachers who must be combated with scriptural truth, which, as the first chapter, 2 Timothy 1, makes clear, Timothy first received from Lois, his grandmother, and his mother Eunice. Here, later in the letter, Paul is reminding Timothy of one of the primary functions of his as a leader of the church, which is teaching the scriptures. That teaching, as Paul says, leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's verse 15. At times it's used for rebuking and correcting. That's verse 16. But it's also used for training in how to live a righteous life. Undoubtedly, in 2022, we still very much need that kind of teaching today. That's the first subpoint. The second is this. The education of the church is founded upon a belief that the Bible is both true and authoritative. We're going to focus on the, the true part of that. The second subpoint from this clause is that we believe that the Bible is true. At this point, you might imagine that there are quite a few paths that we could take. We could talk about definitions of inerrancy and the authority of the Bible, or we could talk about postmodernism's proclamation that there is no truth, or we could dive into the teachings of what's called the Frankfurt School, also known as critical theorists which taught that all truth claims are simply power plays by those in power to maintain power. Suffice it to say that every worldview have, has elements that are worth considering, but ultimately we here at Seven Hills Fellowship have a very different understanding of the truth than that of postmodernity or critical theory. To give a very simple definition, we believe that the Bible is true. That is, it matches up with reality, the reality of your human experience, that it's true in all that it intends to teach. Now, having said that, the Bible is a composition of writings by various authors over many, many centuries, 
The Bible contains any kind, many different kinds of literatures. It contains historical literature. It contains poetic literature. It contains prophetic literature, apocalyptic literature, wisdom literature. It contains allegory, parable, and didactic literature. There's a lot of different kinds of liturgy in Scripture. It's not easy to understand always. There's a whole discipline um, that's taught at seminary. It's called hermeneutics. And this discipline, hermeneutics, teaches pastors and scholars how to read those various forms of literature. And so often when people say the Bible is unreliable, it's because they don't understand those various literary genres. Having said all of that, here at Seven Hills Fellowship, we believe that the Bible is true, that it's our ultimate rule of life and faith. Our culture, as all of you know, has become very uncomfortable with that concept of truth. As I mentioned earlier, postmodernism and critical theory, both of which are actually dominant worldviews in our culture right now, are highly suspicious of truth claims. This questioning of truth has been around for a long, long time. Some of you probably remember Jesus' interaction with Pilate recorded in John 18. It says this, Jesus is speaking to Pilate. He says, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. That's what Jesus is saying. He is affirming truth. And then look at Pilate's response. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. The irony of that statement, of course, is that no one actually lives as if truth is relative. Nobody does. We all use Google Maps in the assumption that they match up with reality and they're going to take us to where we need to go. We all sit in chairs and expect them to hold us up. We willingly climb into metal tubes with wings and then we fly through the sky across the United States of America, right? We let doctors anesthetize us and then operate on us. No one lives as if truth is relative. We believe that truth is a real thing, that there's a real reality. There's a philosophy professor at the University of Illinois named Roger Wingert. He often begins his introductory ethics class by asking his students in the very beginning of the class, how many of you believe that truth is relative? He asks that question. And typically he says he gets uh, probably 75% of the class that raises their hand and they sort of affirm the relativity of truth. Now, then he goes on doesn't really address that. He goes on, he addresses the syllabus, he talks about testing dates, he talks about papers, he talks about the content of the class, all those different kind of things. And then at the end, when he's talking about grading, he, of course, does this on purpose, he informs the class that they'll be graded upon height. And so what happens is inevitably there's some smart, alecky, tall kid who loudly goes, yeah, that's exactly the way it should be. And the professor then says, well, actually, short students get A's and tall students all get F's. Inevitably, a student raises their hand and says, your grading system's not fair. And Wingert responds by saying, I'm the professor. I can grade however I want. But the student inevitably then insists, but you ought, what you ought to do is grade us according to how well we learned the material. You should look at our papers and exams and see how well we've understood the content of the course. And then you ought to grade us on how well our answers sort of match up with the reality of what you've taught us in that class. And then, of course, the rest of the class typically nods in affirmation, especially the tall students. And then Wingert says, uh, he responds this way. He says, by using words like should and ought, you betray your alleged conviction that truth is relative. If you were a true relativist, you would realize there is no existent or external standard to which my grading system should conform. If my truth and my ethic lead me to an alternate grading system that you deem inappropriate, so be it. I will grade however I wish. 
Now, that is a cute little story. And of course, it's very much the kind of thing that a philosophy professor would do. But it highlights the reality that, again, everyone lives. We all live as if truth definitely exists, as if there's a reality that matches up with another reality. Here at Seven Hills Fellowship, what we're saying is that we believe the Bible, correctly interpreted and without apology, is our ultimate source of truth. It's our number one standard for what we believe to be true. That's two little subpoints. Here's the third. The education of the church is founded upon a belief the Bible is both true, but it's also authoritative. This, again, is our third part of the clause. If the Bible is true, then it's also authoritative. Now, typically when I'm doing the membership class, I'll say the Bible is true and has the authority to tell us what to do. The Westminster Confession addresses this concept of biblical authority. About 400 years ago, the authors wrote the following. They said this, the authority of the Holy Scriptures for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Now, earlier in 2 Timothy three sixteen, we read this section of scripture that said, all scripture is God-breathed. Theonoustos is that Greek word. The Bible's integrity, the Bible's veracity, the Bible's authority is not based upon some uh, piece of humanity, but rather it's based upon God's integrity. Now, admittedly, as Westerners, we are a little bit uncomfortable with this idea of authority. That's, again, that's not new. It's sort of been inbred into us for quite a while now. C.S. Lewis addresses this discomfort with uh, authority in his book, The Case for Christianity. He writes this, don't be scared by the word authority. Believing things on authority only means believing in them because you've been told them by someone you think trustworthy. 99% of the things you believe are believed on authority. I believe there is such a place as New York. I haven't seen it myself. I couldn't prove by abstract reasoning that there must be such a place. I believe it because reliable people have told me so. The ordinary man believes in the solar system, atoms, evolution, and the circulation of blood on authority because the scientists say so. Every historical statement in the world is believed on authority. None of us have seen the Norman conquest or the defeat of the Armada. None of us could prove them by pure logic as you prove a thing in mathematics. We believe them simply because people who did see them have left writings that tell us about them. In fact, on authority. A man who jibbed at authority in other things as some people do in religion would have to be content to know nothing all his life. It's a great point by C.S. Lewis. And so what we're saying here is if God is the author of reality, then he also has the authority to tell us what is true about who he is, what is true about who we are, and what is true about how we are to live his life as his creations. Here at Seven Hills Fellowship, unapologetically, we teach that the Bible is God's true word, and it's authoritative to us as well. That's the first point. The education of the church is founded upon a belief the Bible is both true and authoritative. The second point is this. The goal of education within the church is not just information, but it's actually transformation. Now, again, I'm not saying that information is not important. Obviously, it is. Without the proper information in chemistry class, those would both be very, very dangerous academic pursuits. Similarly, um, you better have very accurate information about the car payment on that new car that you might buy. 
You better have accurate information when your flight leaves. You better have accurate information on what dates you booked your Airbnb for. The problem is that we humans have a troubled relationship with truth. Winston Churchill once said, men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing ever happened. Great quote. The point is that often we know what is true, whether it's about God or about Bojangles or about morality, but we don't want our freedoms to be inhibited. So it isn't enough just to know what's true. We have to allow that truth to transform us. I've used this illustration a few times over the years, but probably 15, 20 years ago, I read an article in a a magazine called Fast Company. It's probably now digital only. But in it, there was an article called The Myths of Change. It was really fascinating because what it was, was there was some sort of Harvard study that tracked 1,200 different heart bypass surgery patients. And uh, so essentially what they assumed they were going to find in the study was, we'll study these 1,200 people, and what we'll find is that when things get bad, when you hit the bottom of the barrel, then you change. Because if you're in there for heart bypass surgery, you you kind of are there. And what they found was interesting. What they found is that 90% of the people that had heart bypass surgery did not make the necessary changes that the doctors recommended. The doctors had said, hey, you need to change your diet. They said you need to get more rest, and then you cut stress out of your life. 90% of those people were back within three years for some of their heart procedure. Interestingly, what they didn't expect to find was this. 10%, that 10% that wasn't in within the next three years, they had three things that were consistent. They basically had engaged in a process called reframing. They made sweeping changes, and each of them was part of an accountability group. Regardless, what happened was, is they were transformed by the truth that they learned from the doctors. Now, some of you remember last week I quoted from a professor and writer named David Foster Wallace when he was essentially saying that worship is fundamental to us being humans. Here's another quote of his on the topic of truth and transformation from his novel, The Infinite Jest. In it, he observes this, the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. Let me say that one more time. The truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. What David Foster Wallace realized, what psychologists realize, what philosophers realize is that truth is actually the immovable object. And there are two ways in which people can interact with truth. You can either ram your head against it or you can live in harmony with it. One way will give you brain damage and the other way will make you humble and will make you wise. That's especially true when it comes to the knowledge of God. In the book of James, we see this issue of knowledge, the knowledge of God discussed. James is having a debate about the importance of not simply giving intellectual assent to truth, but actually being transformed by it. And he writes this, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Of course, the truth is important, but if we're not transformed by it, then we're doomed. That's not only true psychologically, it's not only true aeronautically, it's obviously true theologically. That's James' point, of course. We can have great theology, we can know the Bible's backward, we can know it forwards, but if our lives haven't been transformed, then to James' point, we're no better than the angels that rebelled against God. Arguably, they know more about him than most of us do. Now, I just turned 50 uh, a couple weeks ago, And I grew up in a very different cultural epoch than many of you younger folks in here. 
At that time, the broader American culture operated largely upon what we would call a Judeo-Christian concept or sort of framework. More narrowly, my particular subculture growing up in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, was even more overtly Christian. Almost everyone I knew believed in God. They believed in sin, they believed in heaven, they believed in hell. But despite those shared beliefs, there are plenty of people who are functionally irreligious. They made conscious choices to live however they wanted, usually with some vague promise to get right with God eventually. But then there were the religious people. They were the people who also believed in God. They also believed in sin. They also believed in heaven and hell. But those people went to church three times a week. They memorized Bible verses. They listened to Christian contemporary music. I think we have a good picture of Christian contemporary musicians maybe somewhere. Maybe not. Yeah, there we go, Petra. They probably left, read the Left Behind books by Lehay. But many times these people were judgmental. They were legalistic. Maybe they were cold towards other people who were somewhat less moral. Needless to say, those people were not particularly good at attracting others to God. If anything, people were turned off to God by their religiosity. And unfortunately, I would include myself in that latter group, especially the Petra stuff. Believe it or not, Jesus told a story 2,000 years ago about these two groups. We call it the story of the prodigal son, but it might be more accurate to uh, call it the story of the prodigal sons. Both sons in that story believed in God. One took what God offered and then ran from him, and the other tried to bribe him with good behavior in order to get what he had. They both had knowledge about the father. They both lived in proximity to the father, but their hearts had not been transformed by the Father. The theological tradition that Seven Hills comes from is very education-centered. Growing up at a church, a Presbyterian church, I went to Sunday school. We usually focused in Sunday school on Bible stories or on theology, and then after Sunday school, we went to worship. The focus of worship, we sang a little bit, but the focus was really a sermon. And then later that day, we'd come back on Sunday night for evening worship, another sermon. And after that, I'd go to youth group where we'd have another talk. I mean, I was getting lots of education. During the week, there would be men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies. And on Wednesday night, there'd be another worship service with another sermon. Now, to be honest, I'm not criticizing any of those activities. I think they were um, crucial in framing who I am as a person. But what I am saying is that in that context, I knew a lot of what I called constipated Christians, There was a lot of intake and very little output, little transformation. I apologize that that is now stuck in your brain.